I hope one of the great thoughts on our hearts and minds this morning, O Lord, is your glory. You are exalted above the heavens. Your very nature is glory and you cannot share it with another. You are the one who dwells in unapproachable light because you are so glorious. And your plan for us is that we might spend all eternity basking in your glorious love beyond our comprehension, but somehow, Lord, somehow, teach us more of that glory and of your great kindness to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All of us used to live that way one, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like everyone else, we were by nature children of wrath, deserving his judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Jesus Christ, even when we were spiritually dead because of our disobedience. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places because we are united with him. He did this to demonstrate for all time to come the extraordinary riches of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus our Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not of your own efforts, it's a gift from God. And that's why none of us should boast. The story of God's incredible love is painted on the canvas of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's expressed in song, explained in verse, and displayed in the lives of men and women throughout biblical history. For instance, in the Old Testament, we have some individuals who portray this marvelous saving grace of God. There is a harlot from Jericho named Rahab, a military commander with leprosy named Naaman. And then there is a young prince who's crippled in his feet named Mephibosheth, whose sad tale we wanna look at today. And we have some of the first hints about this young man in 2 Samuel chapter four. We have that on the screen for you because we're gonna spend most of our time somewhere else. But the word says to us, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. Interesting, the first time we're introduced to him, this is stated, and the last time, one of the last times he's mentioned, we're reminded of it. He was five years old when news came to him about Saul and Jonathan. They were fighting in the valley of Jezreel. 
Mephibosheth, his nurse, picked him up and began to run. But she dropped him. And he became lame in both feet, crippled. His name, not at the beginning, but later on, was Mephibosheth. I don't know how a young person gets over trauma like this at the age of five. When news came of the battlefield that his grandfather, Saul, and his father, Jonathan, were killed by the Philistines, on Mount Gilboa, they took their last stand. And when the news reached the palace, it was chaotic. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a a small village that gets news that they have been conquered and soon the army will be there to take over the whole town? People were yelling, grown men were crying, filled with fear. The place was in a panic. I can only envision that people were grabbing their prized possessions and herding their family to safety as they quickly got out as as fast as they could. And here was this young little boy. His nurse, because he was a, a prince, he had caretakers, and there was a nurse who grabbed him in the midst of that situation and ran as fast as she could to find freedom and safety for the boy. I imagine that her crying was hurting his ears and her tears covering his face. But on she ran and something happened, but she lost her grip on the boy and he fell. And I can imagine this nurse falling on him, her weight crashing upon his legs. And he was crippled. She regrouped quickly, picked him up, and then began to run again. And so would their life be for many years, a life on the run, trying to avoid Saul's kingdom and his regime coming after them. The terrors of that day never left him. He always remembered what had taken place. When you're a young boy at five, you remember days like this. And maybe we could simply remember it as the day of the fall because his life would never be changed or never be the same from that awful moment. The Bible tells us that uh, this family finally found a place to settle. My guess is the family physician was also on the run and Mephibosheth never had his broken bones or his injuries healed and properly set. And so his life became one of constant pain, set of crutches, his constant companion. And everywhere he went, people would have seen his disability. And disabilities are really cruel, especially when you're a young kid around other kids. His name used to be Mary. Be'ah. It, it actually means that uh, Baal is um, my advocate. I think early on his family, the house of Saul, was doing what many other kings would later do in Israel, and that would be to worship the Baals and the Asheroths. And so he even was given a name, 
Mary Baal. But perhaps after the fall, that's when his name changed to Mephibosheth, which actually means a shameful thing. And nicknames are cruel. So here is this young man now on the run for his life. Not only does he have this injury, but they settle in an obscure village, hopefully out of sight from the new kings, a place called Lodabar. Scholars aren't sure exactly where it is, but it appears to be on the east side of the Jordan, about 10 miles southwest from the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, but on the other side of the Jordan in a territory where they couldn't be found. And there was a kind gentleman of means by the name of Maker who took them in. Maybe he was supporting the house of Saul and wanting to protect Saul's grandson from the new king that came to power. Lodabar means no pasture, a wasteland. So how do you deal with that? You, you used to play in the palace and be the child of, of the, the grandson of the king. And now there's no palace. And now there's no dad to come home to. And everything about his early experience brings fear. And as he would grow up, he learned to fear the next knock on the door and hide just in case it was the rival king. Interesting thing about rival kings, like the king in Philistia, and even the new king who came to rule in Israel, at least the southern part, David, kings had a, a plan to deal with those who were in power before. They would simply execute them. Sometimes even if it was your own family who came in power, you weren't safe. And the sons especially would be executed. Solidification by liquidation. That was their plan. And they would establish their power and throne by eliminating all rivals. Now it's true that Mephibosheth, with his injury, probably couldn't ascend to the throne. But still, one of the things that happened in that day was to eliminate people with injuries. So we can imagine the fear that this young man grew up with. Israel was divided. Mephibosheth's uncle, Ishbosheth, became the king in the northern territories of Israel. But he was a weak man. And the people were, were never stabilized. His reign was very selfish and brought no encouragement. David, however, was the king in the south. His royal city was Hebron. And if it wasn't his nurse, someone told young Mephibosheth the stories about David. Your grandfather loathed him. Your father loved him. In fact, your father said that, that he was his best friend. 
And so Mephibosheth taking all of this in, not exactly sure what to do, but he did know this, that his house was getting weaker. Ishbosheth was killed after only two years of his reign in northern Israel, and David grew stronger and stronger. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David became more and more powerful because the Lord God was with him. Jonathan knew that, but I'm not sure his son, Mephibosheth, had heard that story. Saul's house, weak. David defeated uh, the Amalekites and the Ammonites and about every other ite you could think of, which only brought more fear into the heart of young Mephibosheth as he was hiding in Lodabar. In fact, 2 Samuel says that David became famous after every battle, striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt won him great honor. And the women sang songs to David. But maybe, maybe by now people have forgotten him, he might think. After all, he was five years old when his grandfather and dad died, and now it's been well over a decade, probably 15 years Mephibosheth has married and even has a son and maybe the passing of the years is the very thing to cause the new kings to forget. And he began to scratch out a life even though in poverty, even though he is crippled, at least he is safe and has a family and something to develop with. Until strangers came knocking at the door. Strangers who were sent by the present king. If the first major movement in his life was the fall, then we might say the second major movement in his life is the call. An official summons from the king. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that David actually asked the question, is there anyone left? Anyone left from the house of Saul that I might show them the kindness of God? Never forget this when you study the Old Testament that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. Did you know that? That's what it says in Luke 24. Jesus is the one who said the law and the prophets and even the songs, they all speak of me. And that when you're looking at David in the Old Testament, you're looking at a type of Christ, the one who rules and reigns on David's throne, the Messiah, is none other than Jesus himself. And so when we dig into the Old Testament, these wonderful pictures that portray the saving grace of God are lifting up the love and mercy of Christ. And there's something similar about God's kingdom and David's kingdom. They were kingdoms of kindness. David said, is there anyone left from the house of Saul? If that's all he said, people would have thought of execution. But I want to find them so that I might show them kindness. 
It shows that their hiding over the years had been somewhat successful. There was an old servant from the house of Saul named Ziba who stood up and said, yes, there is one still from the house of Saul. And in 2 Samuel says, there's a son of Jonathan who's lame in both feet. Why would he say that? Maybe to assure David that he was no rival to the throne. (laughs) There is a darker view on that particular phrase because Ziba became a very wealthy individual, most likely controlling all the farmlands that belonged to Saul. And later on, we're going to see that Ziba is a opportunist and a very weak character. But he mentions, yeah, there is one son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. He lives in the house of Maker way out in Lodabar. Someone knew where he was. And David said, go fetch him. And so that's when someone took the trip with an entourage by the authority of the king, knocked on the door and said, Is there someone here, son of Jonathan, by the name of Mephibosheth? And his heart must have melted. The time has come. And my life is over. The day of the summons. He said goodbye to his family, convinced he'd never see them again. Taken under guard, some 60 miles to Jerusalem. Taken away without any explanation whatsoever taken into the presence of the king. You know how intimidating a royal palace would be if you are declared the enemy of the king? It's magnificent cedar beams that David brought in from the north and the wonderful chiseled limestone It was an awesome sight with gold and servants and color. And Mephibosheth was dragged into the presence of David. I like verse six. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, grandson technically, came into the presence of David, he bowed down to pay him honor. It's not an easy thing for a lame person to fall on their face, crutches flying everywhere. He was more prepared to die than to live, waiting to hear words of condemnation that would lead to his execution. But David, and it's interesting the text doesn't say King David or the king, it says David, the friend of the family, said Mephibosheth. It's an amazing thing when you hear the call of God speaking your name in mercy, not in judgment. And it's my guess that his countenance changed and confidence was instilled in him, and he said, Here I am, I am your servant willing to do anything that David wanted him to do. Instead of a sentence of condemnation, he's going to receive a declaration of mercy and kindness. The trembling sinner feareth that God can ne'er forget, but one full payment cleareth 
his memory of all debt. Returning sons he kisses and with robes he invests. His perfect love dismisses all terror from our breasts when Jesus says, I forgive. The words he heard were amazing. Verse seven, don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. By the way, everything in this chapter climbs up to the pinnacle of verse 7. And everything cascades down from the pinnacle of verse seven. Isn't this an amazing statement? First of all, don't be afraid. He was trembling as much as a person can tremble. You ever been that afraid? Where every limb in your body just shakes and vibrates with fear? Don't be afraid. Some of the most extraordinary promises in all of the Bible are preceded with this simple phrase, don't be afraid. He had reason to fear. I think of Mary when an angel showed up one day. We don't know the circumstances. Love to see that in detail. And the angel said to Mary, don't be afraid. When angels showed up, to human beings, most people thought it was certain death. Don't be afraid. Or how about the angels who spoke to the shepherds while they were out in their fields? Don't be afraid, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The promises that follow that don't be afraid are the most comforting promises of all. And to the disciples walking Uh, the disciples in a ship about to sink in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's me. And the soul is calm. The promises of God, even though we have great reason to fear, humanly speaking, the promises of God quell our fears when we learn to fear the God of heaven. And so here is this young man now being encouraged not to be afraid. That's not the only thing. The king who searched for him out of kindness, who summoned him into his presence, is now about to shower all kinds of mercy and love upon him, blessings untold. I'm here to show you kindness. We know it's the kindness of God, but it's the kindness of God which is the kindness shown to his enemies. A portion of scripture that was read a little earlier from Romans chapter five tells us, while we were yet sinners, while we were still helpless, while we were enemies of almighty God, God demonstrated his love toward us by sending Christ to die for us. Greater love has no one than this. Aren't you impressed? Aren't you taken aback by the love that God has for you? 
You say, I don't think he loves me. My life is hard. What about Mephibosheth? I'll tell you how much he loves you. Look at the cross. It was for you. And until you can say that he loves me and gave himself for me, then the cross will mean nothing. And Jesus won't be your Lord. But when you understand the love and kindness of God aimed at your soul, when it wins you over, there's nothing you won't do for the Savior. And that's this particular story. We're told in Colossians chapter one, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. No condemnation, now we dread. Because Jesus is mine and I am his. One of my greatest concerns in my own life, and I see it in the life of the evangelical church, is that we have somehow left our first love. And we have forgotten that Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And with that love, he has given you his life and everything else. Oh, to fall in love with this world means you begin to lose love for your Lord. And in the midst of all that we are faced with, we get distracted and we forget that his love is so amazing and so incredible and we don't deserve it. Look at this verse again. It says that I'm going to show you kindness for your father's sake, for Jonathan's sake, Mephibosheth did absolutely nothing to deserve this kindness. But before he was born, a covenant was made between Jonathan and David. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Jonathan knew that David was going to be the next king, and he said, when you become king, promise me that you won't take my life, thinking that he might still be alive when David was king and that you will not take the lives of my family. 1 Samuel 20, 14, show me the unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. The word kindness in 1 Samuel 20 is the same word kindness in 2 Samuel 9. It's the hesed, the unfailing love and mercy of God. David made a promise, and he's keeping that promise. And did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ has made a covenant with God, with his Father, that all who put their faith and trust in him, all that the Father gives to the Son, he will not lose, and he will die for them, and they shall live forever. It's not because of you, Mephibosheth. It's because of your father and my love for him. It's not because of our greatness that we are saved. It's because of the greatness of Christ. 
and the promise made between, between him and the Father. Verse seven also says, I will, dis, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather. Now this isn't the territory he ruled as king, but this is the ancestral territory that was given to Saul as uh, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And apparently Ishbosheth, when he was dethroned, all that territory went to the new king David, and now David is giving the territory back to him. What's he gonna do with that land? He can't farm the land. Well, Ziba has a bunch of sons, and they're gonna serve David now. They're gonna work the crops, get the produce, all for the benefit of Mephibosheth, which makes me think that Ziba had been doing some tricky, dirty things before in that land that now he'll have to serve and farm. But get this, last part of verse seven, and you will always eat, always eat at my table. He lived in Lodabar, which is a wasteland barren, and now he lives in Jerusalem. Whatever they could scratch out for a living, whatever they could put on the table was probably meager back in Lodabar, but now he's at the king's table. <laughs> and the produce that is being farmed off of his land is being brought and he's enjoying the fruits of it as he sits at the king's table. By the way, when you sit at the king's table, one of the neat things is this. You cannot see your lame feet anymore. They're covered by the kindness of God Almighty. Sitting at the table of the king. Jonathan helped David when David was driven from Saul's table. And now David is going to help Jonathan's son by inviting him to the royal table. And look at verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of his sons. Don't forget this, all implied. King David adopted the lame son of Jonathan and he ate at the table just like the king's sons. If you haven't seen it already, let me put it plainly to you. You are in this story and your name is Mephibosheth. You're the shameful thing, so am I. You're the one who's crippled and impotent. You're the one that is on the run and hiding and living in fear for the day when you must stand before the judge of the whole world. And there's nothing you can say, nothing you can do to make him merciful. But he is merciful. God Almighty is kind, and he's made a pact with his son that if you trust him, all your sins will be forgiven and you will eat at my table the rest of your life. In fact, when you pass from this world, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Unexpected, undeserved mercy of God for you 
and me. And the height of arrogance is to reject it. And the rejecting of God's mercy is to bring judgment. For many years, some of you have been putting it off. You don't want to turn to Christ. You don't want to give in. You don't want to cave in. You're stronger than that. (laughs) This religion thing is okay, and I don't mind even coming on Sundays to somehow ease the conscience and then go out and do my thing the rest of the week, but when God calls you, there's no running. And I pray that the call of God will come upon your heart vividly, powerfully, so that you might see he calls you not to condemn you because you already are condemned. He calls you to rescue you and place you at his table forever. Let's pray. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Lord, do what only you can do by the work of your spirit to touch hearts and draw people to the wonderful Savior this morning, we pray. And may we never, ever get over the fact that you demonstrated your love to us in dying on the cross to save us. Amen.